We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. That can be found on page 471 in the Blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to take one of the Blue Bibles home with you as our gift to you. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Elikim, and Elikim, the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we open Matthew chapter 1 and our eyes fall on a list of names that to most of us are very unfamiliar. But God, they show us that from the moment you made a promise to Abraham, and truly the word tells us even before the world was created, that you had a plan, that your sovereignty reigned in that plan. And in that plan, you worked through human history, God, the the history of one family, the history of one people. And you went through times when that people was sinful and rebellious against you, through people that would seem least deserving to be in the lineage of the great king. And you caused his line to travel through kingdoms that rose and kingdoms that fell. Through deportations as consequences of sin and idolatry. And yet, Lord, when the time was fully come, when, when the absolute moment that you had predestined occurred, Lord, you brought to the earth the fulfillment of your promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent as the serpent would bruise his heel. And so, Lord, we thank you, God, that we have this snapshot of history, Lord, of what you did so covertly throughout all of history, God, to bring about the answer to our deepest need the fulfillment of our greatest longing, Lord. You brought it about in a crying baby lying in a manger 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And we know, God, as we've considered and meditated upon this fact all month long, Lord, that that baby became the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that He suffered and died in our place, that He was risen in victory, never to die again, and that He has ascended to the right hand of the Father where He ever lives to make intercession for people like us. And for that, Lord, we give You glory. We, we, we praise You. We offer You our worship, our most sincere thankfulness and gratitude because You are a promise-keeping God. And the greatest evidence of that is the appearance of Your Son, Jesus. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. So glad you're here this morning. I cannot think of a better way to celebrate this great holiday day than to be worshiping with you this morning. And so I'm glad to be with you this morning. Uh, for the, we're, This morning, we're going to conclude our Advent series that we began a few weeks ago. And in this series, if you've been here you've known that we have been 
examining the theology of popular Christmas hymns. Um, and for this last message in this series, I've chosen one of the most triumphant anthems of the season, in my opinion. Um, this one was written in 1719 by the 18th century pastor and prolific theologian, um, a man named Isaac Watts. And he was also not just a prolific theologian, but a prolific hymn writer. Um, he's known as the godfather of English hymnody. I hope when I'm dead I get a cool name like that. Um, I don't know what it would be, the godfather of pizza or something like that, I don't know. But he wrote over 750 hymns. While, now, while that's not as many hymns as we talked about Charles Wesley a few weeks ago, um, these hymns are so important, and the vast majority of them are used somewhere in the world in somebody's hymn book even today. They include such uh, important songs to the church as When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Isaac Watts was great, uh, uh, a great writer. One thing that... Um, Charles Spurgeon, a hero of mine, tells a story that his grandmother offered him a penny, which, believe it or not, boys and girls, a penny was a lot more money even back then than it is now. And um, he, he, she offered him a penny for every Isaac Watts hymn that he memorized. But his grandfather offered him two pennies for every rat that he killed in the barn. And so he learned that there was a lot more profit in rat killing than in hymn memorizing. And so he, he quickly abandoned the hymn memorizing and went to the rat killing. So uh, ask your moms and dads if they'll give you a dollar or something adjusted for inflation, of course, um, if you'll memorize Isaac Watts' hymns. Well, the song we're going to look at today is Joy to the World. And it has become the most published Christmas hymn in North American history. Interestingly enough, however, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Isaac Watts never wrote this or never intended it to be considered or used as a Christmas hymn. If you notice the lyrics, if you're familiar with the song, which I'm certain that most of you are, it ha makes no mention of shepherds. It does not once mention angels. There's no mention whatsoever in this song of the virgin birth. Nothing of that kind. This song was originally written and it was designed to worshipfully anticipate the final reign and the second coming of Jesus Christ. But somehow, when it got, you know, kind of co-opted for Christmas, it was a great thing because it works for Christmas. Why? Because this is a hopeful season of anticipation and of longing if we only look back historically to the way other people longed for the first Christmas, the first advent of Jesus, then we'll miss the whole point of this season. Amen? It's a time when we look forward, not backward, forward to peace, forward to renewal, not just the promise that was fulfilled in Christ's first coming, but the substance of that promise that will be ultimately fulfilled with his second coming. And so whoever co-opted this song, I didn't, I wasn't able to find what point in human history that transitioned to a Christmas song, but whoever co-opted this song for Christmas did us a favor because I'm convinced that it's only an understanding Christ's first advent that we can ever have any kind of grasp on his second advent. 
People often get confused about the coming of the Lord and the end times and all those things. But if you really want to understand what God is up to with the second advent, regardless of where you fall in all of the various theologies and eschatologies of the end times, know this, the best thing you'll ever do to understand what's happening then will be to under, uh, uh, what's happening next rather would be to understand what happened then. Only in the context of Jesus' redemptive death and His victorious resurrection can we ever understand His completed and consummated victory at the end. And so Isaac Watts adapted this song. He didn't just make it up out of his head. He adapted this song and and the lyrics from it from the words of Psalm 98. So I'm going to ask you, we're going to read that psalm together. I want you everybody to grab your Bibles and look up Psalm 98. And I apologize, I didn't get the page number for you for the Blue Bibles, but but, uh, Psalms is right smack in the middle of the Bible, so you should be able to find it fairly easily. Psalm 98, I'll give you a second or two to do that. Now, as we read this psalm, kind of mentally think about the lyrics of Joy to the World and, and see if you can connect some of the thoughts that Isaac Watts had from this from reading this psalm and connecting them to this glorious hymn of the second coming. Psalm 98.1 Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed the, His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of a melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Here we have, in the words of the psalmist, the declaration of the fullness and perfection of God's work, which will most clearly be seen several decades, several centuries after this was written, it will most clearly be seen and through and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. First in this passage, there's an acknowledgement that His finished work calls for joyous praise. Sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise. Break forth in joyous songs. Sing praises. Make a joyful noise with your musical instruments. This is calling for us to give forth praise. Not praise from a mechanical, religious ritual, but praise from the heart. Unmotivated, mechanical, thoughtless, sterile praise does not please God. In fact, it offends Him. If you doubt me, read Isaiah chapter 1 when you get home. And that will verify for you how God feels about empty religious words and meaningless religious actions. He says in that passage that He'd rather we not offer praise at all if the praise we offer is not genuine. The realization 
and the extent of the implications of Christ's work for us as believers. It should cause us to see the deepest wells of thankfulness break forth within us as we rejoice in the inexpressible gift given to us by the highest majesty of all. And Isaac Watts felt the exact same way. He sees a world redeemed that has every reason for joy. He calls in his song, the first verse, he calls for heaven and nature to sing, for men to employ their songs in the worship of the King of heaven and earth and His reigning power. He envisions all of the redeemed creation, fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, to join in the song of worship for the restoration of the creation. Now, you might be thinking of singing trees and hills and rocks and joyful plains. You might think that that sounds more like a Disney movie than a prophecy of the future. Do you think perhaps that that's too fanciful and poetic to imagine creation rejoicing? Well, if that's your position, let me tell you, the Apostle Paul disagrees with you. Portraying the entire creation is what Paul did right now as longing for and even groaning for such a day to arrive. A day when the curse of sin will be fully removed and the cosmos restored to its God-exalting purpose. Romans 8.18 puts it like this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, listen to this, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What Isaac Watts is telling us in the prophetic vision of Psalms 98, that a day is coming when the time for groaning will come to an end. As we who have placed our trust in Christ will find ourselves fully redeemed. Not just soul and spirit, but as in our bodies as well. He sees all creation rejoicing at the overthrow of sin's curse. Psalm 98 voiced that hope in this way. Let the sea roar and all that is in it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. Joy to the world. As prisoners of a fallen world. I've said this to you before, as prisoners of a fallen world, no matter how hard we try, no matter what kind of mental exertion we make, we cannot fathom yet the realities of a world that is free from deception, free from destruction, free from death. It's like a dream to us. It's wispy and out of reach. But the promise is that one day... Because of what Christ has done, that dream will come true. Right now, in the 
place we find ourselves, we walk by faith and not by sight, as the Apostle tells us. But on that day, our faith will become our sight. In other words, the things that we have hoped for will become reality. They'll, they'll, they'll take on substance. Everything that we believe and yet not seen will take on shape and substance. All wrongs will be righted, all defects recreated, and all things made new. After the resurrection, in the moments before Jesus ascended back to the, His Father, Christ told His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. And there may be some of you here this morning that need to check your belief about what's coming, your belief about the end times against this verse. Because you'll notice that on that hillside 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ did not say all heaven and uh, all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to me. No. He said in His resurrection glory, He said all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This statement affirms for us that Christ is reigning now. His reign does not begin at His second coming. He's right now the rightful King of heaven and earth. To many of us, however, I'll acknowledge this, that seems to make absolutely no sense whatsoever. You look at the world around you and you notice that you still inhabit a, a, an earth where politicians are still dirty, where criminals still prey on the helpless, where our children are constantly threatened with being victimized by perverts, where addictions strip people of their most basic sense of humanity. And yet I would have the audacity to stand here behind this pulpit and tell you that Jesus reigns? Emphatically and unashamedly, yes, Jesus reigns. There's two realizations you have to keep in mind when you consider the seeming contradictions between a risen Christ who is presently reigning over all and a world in the throes of sin like we find ourselves today. First, you have to consider the patience of a God who is not willing that any of His elect should perish in the terrible judgments to come, but is willing to patiently restrain His wrath until the full number of His chosen people have come in. And second, we must remember that God is allowing the wicked to build the case for their own condemnation. Romans 2.5 says this, it says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Some of you know the story of one of the most famous poets in American history, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. In 1863, at the height of the Civil War, he had received news that one of his sons fighting in the war had been seriously wounded. And the widowed Longfellow, who had already gone through a terrible tragedy in the death of his wife, was despairing of a world where hatred and violence caused men to seek to destroy one another. And it was in that time that he wrote his poem, Christmas Bells, which became the basis for the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. 
In this poem, Longfellow almost gives way to total depression because of what his eyes see all around him. Have you ever felt that way? Honestly, have you ever felt that way? What he sees around him is devastation and death and destruction. And, and he writes these powerful words. He says, In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Honestly, have you ever felt that way? But then, like Isaac Watts, he remembers some good news. He remembers that he lives in the middle chapters of the story. The story in which he lives is not yet concluded, but it's progressing towards a happy resolution. And this remind, this, this reminder that was prompted in his heart by the pealing of the bells on Christmas Day led him to conclude victoriously in his poem. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And this is our conviction. This is our conviction as believers as we sing together joy to the world. Our great hope as believers lies in the last verse of Watts' immortal hymn, He rules the earth, He rules the world rather, with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. When does He reign according to Watts and according to the Bible? He reigns now and He reigns forever. How does He reign? He reigns with truth and He reigns with grace over all the nations. Let me explain that if I can. Jesus Christ, right now, here and now, and forever, rules with truth. No matter what illogical silliness or perversion of the natural order this world tries to propose, no matter what religious formula are engineered by idolatrous gurus for the problem of human depravity, no matter what science claims to have done to rid us of the need of a Creator to whom we are accountable, Jesus rules by the truth. Jesus is the truth. Every generation of men have tried to explain Him, to deny Him, or to dismiss Him, but His truth still marches on, and aren't you glad? This is because truth in its essence, is not external to Jesus Christ. And in fact, truth in its essence cannot be known without Jesus Christ. He is the definer of all that is true. He is the very fountain and creator of all that is truly true. And this means that when God judges the earth by the gospel which has been proclaimed, He won't give a second thought to humanistic or pagan arguments or scientific theories designed to rob him of his glory. He will declare in the words of Romans 2.5 that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, those who have, have fought against the truth of God will be held accountable to the judge of all the earth. But 
I've got good news for you. Jesus doesn't only rule by truth. He never rules outside of truth, but He doesn't only rule by truth. He also rules by grace. Has anybody benefited by Christ who rules by grace? This is how the psalm puts it in Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. The amazing quality of God is that this holy, just, avenging God shows Himself to be merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, not treating us according to our many sins, but regarding us with tender, fatherly compassion. And He displays this compassion not by simply disposing of His wrath, because that would make Him unjust, but He satisfies that wrath with that wrath upon His own willing Son. Instead of us. In other words, Jesus takes the blow. And you don't have to. And Jesus takes the blow that He might offer us grace to the praise of His eternal glory throughout all the ages to come. In the words of Watts, this truth and grace makes the nations, and when He says the nations, He means every man, woman, boy, and girl ever born across the globe in all times, He makes the nations prove one of two things. Either the glories of His righteousness or the wonders of His love. Let me see if I can try to explain that. The nations will prove the glories of His righteousness by showing that no one is beyond the reach of His holiness, the King. No one is getting away with anything. When David was caught in the double sin of adultery and murder, he prayed this prayer of repentance. He said to the Lord, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What is David saying there? He means that his sinfulness actually vindicates the holiness of God, leaving God completely justified in His decrees and His judgments, no matter how severe they may be. No one has anything to complain about when receiving the just judgments of a holy God. The Bible says that the whole world will stand silent before Him. When He returns as judge and humanity stands before His great white throne, His righteousness in stark contrast, will stand in stark contrast to human depravity. And it will be seen by all creation, His righteousness that is, as nothing short of glorious in the superlative. 
No one will argue against the righteousness of God. The nations will prove the glories of His righteousness on the day when He comes to judge. But there's also going to be a sea of people, and I hope that you're a part of that sea of humanity, who have walked the narrow road of faith, not trusting in themselves, not trusting in their wisdom, not trusting in their righteousness, but who have clung only to the cross of Christ for the promise of pardon and the promise of eternal life. These undeserving sinners will prove before all creation the wonders of His love. And so my question for you this morning is, which group are you in? What will you prove on the last day? There is no third option. Will you prove the glories of His righteousness or will you prove the wonders of His love? This is not a game. It's not a fantasy. And on that basis, I implore you in the name of Jesus Christ to cast yourself upon Christ as your only rock of salvation, your only security, your only anchor. Now, legitimate question what does any of this have to do with Christmas how would your life change if every time you saw an image or heard a song about a baby in a manger that you remembered that that story did not end in Bethlehem and that story did not end 33 years later on a Roman cross that story comes to its conclusion its glorious conclusion with Christ reigning in truth and grace over His resurrected people in a completely restored creation. Joy to the world. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You for Your kindness to us in giving us Christ. We thank You that Lord, we don't have to get lost in the sentiment of, of images of babies and songs about babies, Lord, as wonderful as that was. But Lord, you have enabled us by your Holy Spirit to see and to understand the deeper meaning. That a king was born. The son of David, the rightful heir to his throne, was born. And that, and that he is now reigning and putting all the nations, all the world under His feet and under His authority. And we thank You for that, God. And Lord, we rejoice in the coming day. And we say with the writer of the book of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to ask our communion servers to come forward and and prepare to to serve us. We are about to... uh, bring this Christmas service to a close by celebrating together around the Lord's uh, table at the Lord's Supper and the covenant renewal that it represents. And uh, we uh, want to encourage you, as we always do, that if you're here and you have not yet uh, acknowledged Jesus Christ, not only as your Savior, but as your Lord. In other words, He's the boss. He calls the shots that He's the one who can uh, require whatever he would require as the Lord of your life. If you haven't, if you have not made that acknowledgement of his lordship, 
then I would just ask you to just uh, stay where you are this morning. We're not trying to withhold something from you or have an elitist attitude. We just know that this is an important symbol of our covenant with Christ. And we don't want to uh, cause you to have any jeopardy to yourself by taking it lightly. So, uh, But for the rest of you, I want to invite you to come forward and receive these elements. Take them back to your, to your seat and we will uh, share them together uh, in just a moment. But yeah, go ahead and come and, and we'll, uh, we'll take them together in just a moment. This morning I'm reading from uh, Matthew's Gospel, which tells us as they were eating... Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's partake of the bread together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again, drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Lord, we thank you for your promise to us. You already kept the promise of your first redemptive coming, and we thank you for that. And so, Lord, we together as your body, we long for the day when we will drink of the fruit of this vine with you in the fullness of your Father's kingdom, fully culminated by your righteousness and by your love. And we thank you for that, Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I'm just going to pronounce this quick benediction that looks forward, not backward to you. And the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed. Merry Christmas.